starting a new series this morning on the book of First Peter. I, uh, I've had it in my heart to preach this book for several months now, just looking for the opportunity, and, and the Lord seems to highlight this month. If you don't know where uh, the book of First Peter is, it's in the New Testament. It's almost all the way to Revelation. Uh, it's back there with First, Second, Third John, and then before that's First and Second Peter. Uh, so if you get to Revelation, obviously you've gone too far. First Peter. This book was written, obviously, by the Apostle Peter. That same guy that uh, argued with Jesus when Jesus wanted to uh, wash his feet. It's that same guy that when Jesus says that he was going to die, the, uh, this same apostle was the one that argued with Jesus on that. This is the same apostle Peter that said, I'll die with you, Jesus. And Jesus had to say, no, you're going to deny me. And in fact, he did deny him three times 
at his trial, at, at the trial of Jesus. This is also, though, the same Peter that when Jesus was asking them, who do you say that I am? He was the only one that said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And uh, Jesus had uh, said to him, blessed are you, for it's not man that's revealed this to you, but God, the Father, the Spirit has revealed this to you. So uh, he made a lot of mistakes. He did some great things as well. Uh, These two letters that he wrote, wonderful, wonderful scripture. And I've wanted to preach through this book because of the overarching, overarching theme of this book, which is hope. Hope. And of course, the title of my message this morning is, Is There Any Hope? The Apostle Peter directs this book to Christians that have been spread throughout the region. They've been dispersed, mainly because of persecution. We're going to address that in just a moment. And in their suffering, the Apostle seeks to encourage them and motivate them to keep the faith and to keep their integrity in light of what they're facing. You see, it's real easy to do the things of Christ, to walk the walk of Christ, when everybody is encouraging you to do it, and, and it seems like it's all, all, all in favor, and, and everybody's like, this is the way you should do. But when you're being persecuted for that very thing, when, when people are harming you, when people are ridiculing you for that very thing, it's, it's kind of difficult to live that lifestyle of following Christ. And that's what these Christians that Peter, that the Apostle Peter is addressing, were falling under. They, they didn't have that kind of encouragement of the local Uh, body of believers, but also supported really by the context of their society like we are here in America. And so this could lead to a severe lack of hope in their lives. And I know some of you may say, well, wait, our society does not really encourage that type of living. Uh, Yeah, to a point, but really we still live in a day where the Christian values and morals, what we call the Judeo-Christian values and morals, still pervade in our society Listen, we don't face anything like they were facing in this biblical time where the emperor of the Roman nation got up and married a little boy in front of the entire country and they applauded it. Read that sometime about Emperor Nero. I mean, this guy was as immoral as they come. And and this was the life, this was the society that the Christians were trying to live their life in front of. Okay, so just leaving it at that. Anyway, let's get to our scripture. I'm going to get off and start preaching a lot more than I had planned on, and, and, and we're going to miss lunch, right? 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through verse 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorrupted, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, 
though if it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you, uh, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, inexpressible and full of glory. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have been preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, spent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Let's pause a moment, please, for prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your scripture that you inspired the Apostle Peter to write. And though he wrote it to believers thousands of years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, I believe it still applies to us today. There, there's reasons in our world in 2018 for us to be hopeless. But Lord, we can answer this question, is there any hope by looking at what exactly we are putting our hope into? And, and my prayer, Lord, is this morning, is that you would speak to each and every one of us. Uh, we've already prayed that you would get me out of the way and that you would speak through me. And we pray this because we are utterly, soulfully dependent upon you. Lord, what I say makes not a hill of beans, if you are not present in this place and speaking to each and every one of us. So, Lord, let us not leave this place the same way we walked in. Lord, let us hear from you this morning. And it is your name I pray, Lord. Amen. There's a lot of reasons that these Christians had to be hopeless. I want to just give you a couple real quick. The first one is they were exiled, exiled from their homeland. My verse 1 calls them pilgrims. Some of yours might call them exiles. Depending on the version, it might even say sojourners or something of that nature. The point is, is they were not in their homeland. At this particular time, the reason they were exiled, and by the way, this was not exiles from Jerusalem, where God's people have often been exiled out. But in this case, I believe Peter, the Apostle Peter, is addressing Christians that have had to leave Rome. See, right around this time period, Rome burned. And when Rome burned, the people of Rome looked at Nero and said, look what you've done. And Nero said, no, it was the Christians. They became the scapegoat for the burning of Rome. And so the persecution that they were already facing just got turned up. You see, they were being fed to lions at the Colosseum. They were being ridiculed. They were being beaten. They were being put to death. They were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. But when Rome burned and Nero blamed it on them, it just got turned up all that much more. Well, why were they being persecuted? We're going to get to that in just a second. But because of this persecution, they decided to leave Rome and go to all of these different regions of Asia Minor and, and the Roman Empire. And that's why Paul is addressing them as pilgrims. I don't know about you, but anytime I'm not in my home, it's a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, you might go on a vacation and see some new land, but don't you get a little uncomfortable about not being at homeland, right? I mean, you might have left dad behind. He, he couldn't make the trip with you. What happens if he passes away while you're exiled away from your homeland? Any number of possibilities. Things that just, you know, they're unsettling. It's troubling, and it might 
make you think there's, there's little hope being away from home. So he's addressing that. Here's another, I said we would address persecution. They were facing persecution. It's a major recurring theme in this letter from the Apostle Peter. They faced persecution for a, a number of reasons. Number one, they worshipped Jesus. And in this time in the Roman Empire, they were supposed to be Rome, uh, worshipping the Roman Emperor. He was seen as a deity. And for them to worship anyone else but the Emperor was seen as heresy. And so they were often ridiculed or persecuted or put to death because they refused to turn away from worshiping just Jesus, and, and, and instead they were supposed to be worshiping their emperor. They, they were also persecuted because they believed in a, an unseen savior. Uh, he talks about how you believe even though you haven't seen. They believed in this savior who was slain on the cross. They believed that he rose again, that, that these apostles spoke on behalf of Jesus. It, it, it brought such conviction. I mean, throughout time, the name of Jesus has brought such a hatred and a conflict in the society of which it is spoken. I mean, we've seen that throughout the ages. Last Sunday, I, we pre not two Sundays ago, we preached about that idea. Two Sunday nights ago, we preached about that idea that the name of Jesus is so controversial that the world absolutely hates what Jesus Christ represents. The only way of salvation is one of the things that Jesus Christ represents. And the world absolutely hates that. To make matters worse, these Christians shared life with one another. If, if somebody was in need, they would sell whatever they had to help that person in need. They were, they were seen as a cult, almost. And so it wasn't just the Jewish religious leaders that were persecuting back in Jerusalem, but the Roman leaders and the Roman people were persecuting the Christians as well. We can certainly relate to hopeless situations, can't we, in 2018? We certainly can relate to what it seems like, you know, just through the last several years, it just seems like the world that we live in has gotten dramatically, morally, spiritually worse off. It seems like every month or so, it's one heartache after another. As you probably heard, this past week we had another mass shooting here in America. I don't, you know, there's been reports that it was the 8th or the 18th. I don't know. I don't keep count. I don't think that's really actually an accurate number. One is too many. One is, is too many. And it is troubling. It's, it's heartbreaking. And it leaves us discussing and arguing over what we think is the solution. All the while, I don't know about you, but if you're a parent of a school-aged children, I am troubled because there is the possibility that my kid's school could be next. That's troubling. That's hard. And, and, it, and it might even cause you to say, is there any hope? It's very troubling while the government is saying, well, this is the solution and that is the solution. Surely we know the real problem is not gun laws or accessibility. It's a heart problem. It's a spiritual problem. What does it take for someone to go kill somebody in cold blood, much less a whole lot of somebody? That's, that is a heart problem. But it's not just the shootings, right? I'm, listen, we could talk about that, and, and I could say some things and get some amens this morning, but that's not where I'm going. I'm sure if I ask for a show of hands, if your life has been affected by some sort of terminal illness, every hand in this room would go up, wouldn't it? It seems like every single day we hear of someone else that we are close to 
now has cancer or some other illness that there seems to be little or no hope in. Little to no hope. And it might leave us with this same question. What do I do? Is, is there any hope? We, like Christians in Peter's day, are also exiles. We may not have to leave our homeland because of persecution, but if you have been born again, there's a feeling deep within us that says, this is not my home, I do not belong here. And that's because your spirit longs to be in heaven with Jesus. And so with every heartache and every tragedy and every sickness and every temptation, we're troubled and we're left longing for what this world will never give us, hope. Now, do we face persecution? I don't believe we face persecution like the Christians in the Apostle Peter's day did. I don't think we face persecution like Christians around the world are, are facing it in nations where the name of Jesus is, is outlawed to be spoken. But in the last 30 or 40 years, the influence of Christianity on this country has de degenerated. We are no longer on the center of the society pushing out, but now we're kind of on the outside looking in. And I'm going to tell you, if things don't change, if there's not some sort of great spiritual awakening, which was about 40 to 50 years ago, the last great spiritual awakening that happened in this nation, if we don't have another one, I believe persecution is soon to come. And we will be left with this question, where's our hope? Is there any hope? And so we, like those that Simon Peter is addressing, might be led to ask that question, where is our hope? And we, like those that Simon Peter is addressing in 1 Peter, can reply with a resounding, here's your hope. Th th there is a reason to hope. But what is hope? We must understand that hope, first off, has a future tense sense to it. A future tense sense to it. When you hope, you are hoping on some outcome to occur in the future. Now, in 2018, and for this last many years that I've been alive, we use the word hope commonly to refer to something we wish would happen. I hope my team wins. I hope I can eat an entire carton of bluebell ice cream and not gain a pound, right? That's wishful thinking. You might be thinking, I hope he doesn't preach too long. Wishful thinking. But this is not the biblical definition of hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. It is faith-filled confidence. Hope and faith go hand in hand because as the Bible says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So in this sense, our hope is faith in what the future holds. So it's not about what you wish for, but what you have faith in. So in answering the question, is there any hope, we must honestly investigate what it is we have put our hope into. That is, what do we have faith-filled confidence in what will happen? What? And in this scripture, I want to pull out for you three reasons and. There are really more than that, but for the sake of time, I just want to give you three reasons in this scripture that we have reason to hope. First one is this, God's election. God's election of you. Now, a lot of us have a hang-up on this word. A lot of us have a hang-up on the idea of God's election of people to salvation. There are many things about God's election that scripture teaches that we just cannot argue with. Verse 2 states that we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now what that means is that God knows all things. 
If you don't believe that, that's, that's a problem with your application of what Scripture teaches because Scripture teaches clearly God knows all things from the past from, to the present to the future. God knows all things, and He already has things planned out in His hands. God knows all things. And so He knows who will be saved and who will not be saved. This does not take away from the truth, though, that we must choose that we must choose if we will follow the Lord Jesus Christ, if we will accept Him as our Lord and Savior. The Bible says, and we just sang it, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is that the will of the Lord is that everyone would be saved and none should perish. So how do we deal with this topic of God's election? There's a theologian that I, I like to read from. His name is Donald Barnhouse. He's been dead for many years. But speaking on this subject... He put it like this, imagine a cross, a cross like the one that Jesus died on, only this cross is so wide that it has a door at the foot of it. And on that cross, right above the door, is written these words. And these words come from the book of Revelation, whosoever will may come. And these words represent the free and universal offer of the gospel. By God's grace, the message of salvation is for everyone. Every man, woman, and child who will come to the cross is invited to believe in Jesus Christ and enter in eternal life. But if you make the choice to walk through that door, as you walk through the door, if you happen to turn around, you might see written over the door these words, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You see, God's election of us into salvation is best understood in hindsight. We won't understand how does God's election of us into salvation work with our choosing Christ as Lord and Savior. I don't have an answer for you. But I know these two things are taught in Scripture, and I believe them wholeheartedly, and I trust God to work these things out. We must see that God's election, though, means this. You were chosen to hear the message of the gospel. I don't believe any of you are here by accident. I don't believe any of you just happenstance came into this place. But I believe that God appointed this moment for you to hear a message about the gospel. For whatever reason, you were elected to hear from God this morning from His scriptures. The question is, is what will you do with God's election for you to hear this message? We must see that God's election means that we were chosen to hear the message of Christ crucified. It, there, I don't know if you noticed, but in verses 10 through 12, the apostle starts talking about prophets in the past. And there's this absolutely beautiful statement that, that he makes in verse 12. We'll get to that in a second. But what it's basically saying is that in millennia past, the prophets were writing about this coming Savior, and they didn't exactly know who they were writing for, or maybe they were writing for themselves about Jesus and this gift of grace, salvation, coming through a Savior. But verse 12 says, it was revealed to them, it was revealed to them, they were not serving themselves, but you. Have you ever paused a moment to think and praise the Lord that you live on this side of the cross? It was revealed to the prophets that the message of salvation they were writing about thousands of years before Jesus would ever come on the scene, was for you thousands of years after Jesus came on the scene. God elected you for that. 
God chose for you to have that opportunity. The fact that you get to hear the gospel message in your language is a sign of God's election. The fact that you can go to Walmart and pick up a Bible for $10 and read the gospel message is a sign of God's election. The fact that you are here in this place this morning hearing about a risen Lord and Savior is a sign of God's election. Again, the question you must ask is what will I do with this gift from God? The very fact that you've been elected by God to decide on the message of the cross of Jesus Christ should cause you to have hope. But his election is not just about hearing the message, but believing too. Verse 3 reads, God has begotten us to a new living hope, meaning it is by his mercy that we are even born again. It is by his mercy, by his grace that we are even saved. Now, I know it makes us uncomfortable to say that we are saved by God's design, but there is no other way of explaining this scripture and many other scriptures that seem to teach this, that God's design is for you to be saved through movements and moments in your life, through revelations and understandings. The Bible, the scriptures being illuminated to your mind in such a way that you can understand it and make sense of it, that your spiritual eyes are made to be open and the gospel is revealed to you is a gift. It is God's election on your life and he is doing it in such a way that you will say, I believe, I believe in this Jesus Christ and I choose. God not only gives us the opportunity to hear the gospel, but he chose to open up your mind and your ears and your eyes so that you could respond to that gospel message. But again, it does not negate our need to call upon the name of the Lord. Now again, do we understand this in its entirety? Absolutely not. But rest assured and have hope that if you are hearing this message, it is because God has elected for you to hear it. That should give you hope. Second hope, reason that you have, is God's securing or security of our salvation. In verse 4, it reads that we have an inheritance. An inheritance. Anybody ever received an inheritance? You were so thankful maybe to get that little gift from a loved one that has passed away. Well, what happens to that inheritance if you spend it? It's gone. Maybe you inherited a car. What happens to those cars? They wear out. But what God says about, or what, what the, the Apostle Peter says about this inheritance that we get from God is that it is incorruptible, undefiled, and never fading. Those are three very, very expressing words that express the longevity of this inheritance. Simply put, the inheritance, which is the fulfillment of our salvation, the promise of heaven, it will never expire. It will never go away. It will never tarnish. It will never decay. You don't have to do maintenance on your salvation or its inheritance, and its warranty will never go out. And to take that step, that one step further, according to verse 5, it says, our salvation is kept by the power of God. Some of your versions actually say this, it is guarded by God. Guarded by God. You know, this reminds me of a scripture that Jesus gives us in John chapter 10, the gospel of John chapter 10, verse 28 through 29. Here's what Jesus says about our eternal life. He says, I give them, he's talking about his sheep, talking about the believers, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all 
No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. You want a reason to hope? The security of your salvation is not on you. It is on Him. It rests in His guardianship over you. Listen, Satan wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your hope. He wants to steal your salvation. But rest assured, he can't get it. And it's not because of us. It's not because of me. It's not because of my choice. It is because of Jesus. It is because of God. It is because of the Holy Spirit working in us and guarding us from that ever happening. My salvation is secure in the hand of God. And that gives me extreme hope. Because even on my worst day, I can still rest assured of this. The blood will never lose its power. Amen? Amen. Our salvation is totally and completely secure in the hand of God. And if you are saved, then you are saved. And it will persevere until the revelation of Jesus Christ. Until Jesus Christ comes back or until you are called home. We will not lose our salvation like we lose our keys. We won't misplace it like we misplaced those sunglasses. And this is hope. And this Peter states is a reason for us to rejoice. To rejoice. Finally, we can have hope because of the testing of our faith. What? How does the testing of our faith give us hope? Well, hear me out. And I know that sounds crazy, but then so does what the Apostle Peter says in verse 6. In fact, if you read verse 6 by itself, you might say, Peter, are you so crazy? What are you talking about? Because he talks about rejoicing in the midst of trials. Specifically, Peter states this, you greatly rejoice. And that, that, that phrase, you greatly rejoice, is actually in the Greek language, it is one word. And it is a word that, it doesn't mean just to have a smile on your face. It doesn't mean just to have happy times in your life. But it actually means to, I'm going to try it, jump for joy. Have any of you ever been so filled with joy that it exuded out of you? Essentially what this word is trying to communicate in the Greek language, and we're trying to get into English, is that you are so satisfied within you that it overflows out of you. Have you ever had something that satisfied you so much that it just exuded out of you? Maybe the birth of a child. Maybe you didn't jump for joy as you're holding that new baby but maybe tears welled up in your eyes and they streamed down your face and you weren't crying because you were sad, you were crying because you were so filled with joy. You were greatly rejoicing. Or how about this past fall? This past fall, the hope and dreams of every lifelong Astros fan was finally fulfilled. And you saw on TV grown men crying and leaping for joy as they got that final out in the World Series there in, in L.A. But here's the thing. Is that inward satisfaction that leads to you jumping for joy, those kinds of earthly things will fade away. Here in a couple of months, spring training will start, the spring season will start, and that joy you felt about your Astros finally winning will fade away because you'll say, I hope they can win another one, right? Let's not be satisfied. Let's go get one more. Or that baby that you were crying over from joy may cause crying for other reasons someday, right? It will fade away. But what Peter is talking about is a joy that doesn't 
fade away. That a great rejoicing that never ceases. Why is that? Well, first, he is referring to the security of our salvation, which we already talked about. That there is joy and hope because of our salvation, which is guarded by the hand of God. And I know joy and hope, they're not synonymous. They're not the same word, but they're not mutually exclusive. Joy and hope often go hand in hand. But there's another reason that we have this great rejoicing. Let's just read verses 6 six and 7 again. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why would we rejoice in facing trials, in being grieved? And that, that word in the Greek language for being grieved is closer to the word distress. In fact, some of your translations might actually have the word distress. And it refers to being put under a tremendous amount of pressure. And what the apostle says is that these trials, these troubles that we face, are a test of the genuineness of our faith. Why? Because being greatly distressed shows what our faith is really in. In two of the Gospels, there is a story that Jesus tells about two men that are building a house. One of them builds the house on solid rock. The other man builds his rock on sand. And both of them face storms in their life. And when those storms hit the man who built his house on the rock, his house stands strong. But when the house when the man is hit by the storms who built his house on the sand, his house is washed away. And what Jesus explains is, is the house is representative of our life. And that foundation is built on is one who either responds to the gospel message with authentic saving faith, and the one who is sand's foundation is the one who doesn't respond with faith whatsoever. You see, essentially... What it represents is authentic, genuine, saving faith and a non-saving faith. And the non-saving faith is the man who built his house on the, on the sand. What the Bible teaches throughout is that there is a type of belief that you can have that does not lead to salvation. It might be a mental acceptance. You maybe have heard it like this. Some people will miss heaven by 18 inches or something like that, the distance from the head to the heart. But essentially what we're trying to say is, is that you can believe the truths about Jesus Christ, but not believe in them. You can accept them as truth and say, yeah, that sounds pretty good, but not have a genuine, authentic, saving faith, because you've never said, I believe that you are it, Jesus. But instead, you're still trying to Figure it out on your own. And throughout my life in ministry, I've seen this played out time after time. You have someone who is a regular attender of church. They come almost every Sunday, and then suddenly something happens. You never see them again. Maybe somebody said something to them, or maybe some sort of trouble has hit their life unknown, unknowing to us. And they completely drop out of church. Perhaps they even question whether there's even a God. Because the trouble, the trials, the storms of life have come and it has washed their house of faith out from under them. 
But I've also seen this played out in just the opposite way. Some believer comes down with some sort of trial or tribulation, an illness perhaps. And we all kind of survey them and, and think, well, they, they're not going to survive this physically. I wonder what it's going to do to them in their faith. But instead of falling away from God, they turn more towards God. Instead of questioning God, they are more devoted to God. They express their devotion to Him and they praise Him and confess their faith deeper and deeper and deeper. You see, the trials and troubles of this world will either cause us to say, God, I believe in you and I believe in your word. Or they'll cause us to say, why are you letting this happen to me? How dare you? I don't deserve this. This is not a mid-sermon snack. You see this orange up here. It's a pretty healthy orange, right? It's got a little green on it, meaning it's not completely ripened. And so if I was to squeeze this, orange juice might come out, right? But there is no way to know what would come out of it until it is put under the pressure of squeezing it. There's no way to know if your faith is genuine until you face that trial. And what Peter is saying is, you need to rejoice in these trials that you're facing because it will reveal the genuineness of your faith. And then you can say, God's got me. And so a genuine faith doesn't look at the trial and tribulation of life and say, oh, I don't want to face that. But instead it almost looks at it and says, bring it. He's got it. I, I don't. I don't. He's got this. He's got this. And I'm trusting in him. The troubles of this world that put stress on our lives reveal what kind of faith lays on the inside of us. And what the Apostle Peter says is this shows the genuineness of our faith, and so we rejoice. Warren Wiersbe, a pastor and theologian, says this, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And this genuine faith, Peter says, is more valuable than gold. So what do we do with this? Now, now what? what? What do we do with this testing and this these reasons for hope. Genuine faith is more valuable than gold. It's funny, isn't it, that gold is still seen today as valuable as it was thousands of years ago. I mean, thousands of years ago, kings lusted after gold. They would build their temples out of gold. They would overlay everything. You read in the Bible, even the God-following kings would overlay everything in gold. It was just this beautiful, precious metal that everybody loved and and it's the same today, isn't it? People love gold. And if it's not gold, then it's some other possession. Or maybe even a relationship with an individual. It's something that we value. And if we're putting value on that thing, we essentially place our hope into that thing. Now remember, hope is faith in the future. And what does Peter say happens to gold there? In verse 7, he said, it's much more precious than gold that perishes. And if gold perishes, then everything else that's lesser value than gold, it's going to perish too. So what are you putting your hope in? Some sort of thing that this earth presents to you? Some sort of relationship that this earth gives to you? Or are you putting it in the truth of God? And remember, what is... Scripture say, what did Peter say about the things that we get from God? Our inheritance, specifically, verse 4, it is incorruptible, undefiled, 
and it never fades away. It doesn't rot. It doesn't rot. Is there any hope? It depends on what you're putting your hope into. Psalm 43.5 teaches us that we will be downcast, we will be saddened in our heart, we will be affected by the troubles of this world if we don't have our hope in God. So hope in God. Put your hope, your faith in the future in God and God alone. Hope in the Lord. He is the only one that causes the sun to shine again in our lives. That even the darkest moments, we can sense His light and the brightness of His life in us. Because the things of this earth will let us down. The things of this earth can be circumstantial. And like joy, hope must not be put into something that perishes or that is circumstantial. It can change with every moment. My hope is built on truth. My hope is built on those things that are by the eternal hand of God. As Edward Mote wrote, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He goes on to say, His oath, His covenant, and His blood support me in the whelming flood. When every earthly prop gives way, He there is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. The only thing that will bring you lasting hope is the Lord God Almighty and a relationship with Him, a relationship with Him that brings you to a salvation that lasts forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this scripture. And I just, Father, I pray that during this time where we respond to you, we respond to your scripture, Lord, that we would listen to you and how you are leading us to respond. Lord, if we have never received you as Lord and Savior, we are lost. Father, I pray that this would be a morning where we would confess you, repent of our sin, and receive you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, make this the morning that someone finds true, eternal hope in a relationship with you. Lord, maybe there's a, a born-again believer here that's been putting their hope in all kinds of other things, and, and then they're downcast, they're, they're, they're just depressed and saddened all the time. It's because they're putting their hope in earthly things. They have forgotten those true and wonderful truths that we can put our hope in that are eternal by your hand. They never fade away. Father, I pray this would be a morning of repentance for those who have been putting their hope in other things. Lord, maybe there's someone who needs to just respond in prayer. I pray, Father, that you would encourage them to do that. Either in their pew or they can come forward. And maybe they'd like to talk. Lord, I just pray you would embolden them pray that you would move in every single one of us this morning, however you will. And it's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.